Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in African American Studies, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, James West, and joining me today is Dr. Edward Onochi, who's a professor of history at Ursinus College. We'll be talking about his new book, Free the Land, The Republic of New Africa and the Pursuit of a Black Nation State, which is out now with the University of North Carolina Press. Edward's book is the first to tell the full story of the RNA and the New African Independence Movement. A rich cultural and political history, Free the Land shows how new Africans remade their lifestyles and daily activities to create a self-consciously revolutionary culture. Hi Ed, how are you doing? I'm well. How are you doing, James? I'm doing okay. I'm uh, I'm surviving. I think I think we're all surviving. Yeah, absolutely. So, I'm really looking forward to getting into your book. To start off with, for our listeners, it would be useful to just clarify some of the key terms and groups that you that you discuss. First of all, can you give just a brief overview of RNA, the Republic of New Africa? What does this term mean? Absolutely. So according to theorists of the New African independence movement, the Republic of New Africa is the uh, quote-unquote captive black nation here in the U.S., so these would be the people who, due to human trafficking, enslavement, and ongoing racist and economic oppression, continue to be victimized by the U.S. empire. In other words, the Republic of New Africa are the people whom we typically refer to as Black people or African Americans or any other term that people may use. And so as I point out in the book, and as others have made clear since the formation of the provisional government of the Republic of New Africa, uh, that was in 1968. This term is not exclusive to Black people or African Americans. In fact, some people have who are not of African descent, such as Yuri Kochiyama, had joined the movement, pledged their citizenship to the New African Nation, and to my knowledge, never renounced that membership or that that citizenship, as they like to call it. And, and so. That would be the the Republic of New Africa is first and foremost, I would say the people, but it's also this landmass. It's the five states of Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, and Georgia that people in this independence movement claim as their territory, the territory that they're trying to liberate uh, for their independent black nation state. And so I I talked about the New African Independence Movement, and the New African Independence Movement is that effort. It is that attempt to get those five states to move people to them to create this independent Black nation state. It's also a movement for reparations. Um, And so those would be the those are some of the key terms that I'm trying to in the book trying to clarify. It isn't necessarily something that reflects the general terminology that people use, because oftentimes people just say Republican African. We all know what we're talking about. Um, But I do think that it is useful to think about this as an ongoing movement and not just an organization. And in fact, it's, it's a movement with a number of different formations and organizations. So there's the provisional government of the Republic of Africa, and that is what people conceive of as the governing body that would help lead the captive Black nation to liberation and would help govern them, um, become an actual governing body, I guess, once they achieve liberation and independence. But then there are a number of grassroots and political organizations. There's the New African People's Organization. There's the African People's Party. And before them, there was a revolutionary action movement. And Um, They helped create the groundwork for the Republic of New Africa, were there at the founding convention of the provisional government of the Republic of New Africa, and have been engaged, at least from what I have seen, have been engaged since then. 
Um, and there, there's one other term that I think is really important to clarify or to, or to dis- explain, and that's New African political science. And New African political science will be the body of ideas that are distinct to this New African independence movement. And what I do in the book is I break it down into five categories, if you will, of, of ideas, including that first, as I said before, Black people in the U.S. are a captive African nation. And there's a lot more I can say about that because they have language about citizenship and paper citizenship that goes along with that. Um, but a second, so that would be the first point. The second point is that according to international law, this captive Black nation has the right to self-determination, right? To determine for themselves where to place their consent of citizenship. The third point would be that in order for the Republic of New Africa to become a truly independent, self-governing nation state, they have to um, they have to help wage revolution against Western imperialism, capitalism, and that has to go because they've learned from their contemporaries, they learned from history that if you have a powerhouse, especially since they were operating. Uh, at their peak during the Cold War, if you have a powerhouse that is enforcing certain economic and political agendas on weaker nations, that they wouldn't be able to survive. Even if they got independence, they wouldn't be able to survive if the U.S. still functioned in that way. In the U.S. and other Western nations, right? Again, as capitalistic and imperialistic forces. Uh, the fourth body of thought that I- I'm arguing falls within New African political science is that New Africans are consciously fighting a war against U.S. imperialism. And in that war, they're they're fighting to destroy uh, oppression that they face, but also oppression all over the world. So they saw themselves as one captive nation that was fighting for decolonization at a time when a number of nations, uh, or I guess colonies at this point, were fighting for independence and nationhood. And then finally, as as I've written it at least, in order to be successful in this movement, people have to undergo some sort of personal transformation. And they have to move from being African-Americans or Black people mentally to being new Africans, which would be the new thing that folks were trying to create as they pursued this independence movement. Thanks, Ed. That's a really detailed um, but succinct overview. One thing, just before we we start to dig into the research a little more, is this idea of New African, and you talk about naming um, in the book. So can you can you say a little bit about the political, cultural significance of, of spelling Africa with a K? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, um, that was one of the things I enjoyed researching, actually, it's like, why K? Okay, so so the brief version is that during the 1970s, as African nations were gaining independence, and as uh, people, Black people in the U.S. were thinking of themselves as a captive Black nation, and this is not, this is not specific to the New African independence movement, that was language that was common um, across the board in terms of black nationalists and, and black radicals. So as these things are occurring, people were trying to quote unquote decolonize themselves mentally. And so one of the ways that they attempted to do this was through renaming themselves to reflect their pride in their, their African lineage. Um, but also they acknowledge that many of the, the the features of life, right, of governing, of society, et cetera, were dictated by forces that they had a fundamental disagreement with. Okay. So if if you have a fundamental disagreement with imperialism and colonialism, and you recognize that your alphabet, your language, your names, et cetera had been overdetermined by the people who you have that fundamental disagreement with, then it, it's important to begin rethinking that. And so 
uh, not only did people start calling themselves New Africans, which was a self-determined identifier, but at the individual level, people started to say, well, let me get rid of Jones, which was forced on me, and let me go with, you know, fill in the blank last name. I'll just say Obadeli, since the Obadeli brothers, uh, Gaidi and Amari Obadeli, were two of the co-founders of this movement. And then in terms of the K, I've, I've gotten a number of explanations about the K. Everything from people who just wanted to spell things a little differently to distinguish themselves from the U.S. And so one of the popular things was to spell America with three Ks, right? So it was a political choice that was meant to be subversive. But then in Russell Rickford's book, he talks about a, um, I don't have it in front of me, and hopefully I'm not messing up the details, but I believe a Zimbabwean activist who was in the U.S. who was arguing that the K was closer to how people in Africa would be spelling things, you know, especially if they were from Southern or in Eastern Africa. And so that's another ex explanation that I've seen. I would say just one more thing about spelling and naming. There's also a lot of geographic significance uh, that, that goes along with this. So even as people as a group begin to call themselves New Africans and they start to change their names as individuals, they start to rethink maps, right? So take the typical United States map, and it's, it is what it looks like today. They started to ask, well, what happens if we take those five states? Okay, what happens if we start to rename some of these cities? What happens if, you know, there's a whole list of questions there. And so that is also, I think, uh, an important thing to pay attention to is, is how do people rethink space and geography even as they rethink spellings and names. And so it's something that I try to explore and provide a little analysis of uh, in, in the book. Yeah, that relationship between geography and, and naming and the, those those choices are, are you know, some of the strongest aspects of the book. And, and hopefully we'll, we'll get into that more a little bit later in, in our conversation. To, to talk a little bit about archival interventions because there's some there's some really great archival work that's gone into this project and, and a lot of oral histories as well what's the the process I mean at what point in this journey did did you think you know this this is going to be a book um, and and did that come through uh, a particular conversation or, or did it come through a particular archival discovery it's funny I've actually been trying to remember just for myself how did I get into this project? <laughs> so here's the best I can do. Um, I do know it was around 2007 and I was actually doing a lot of research on the Black Panther Party and thought I had committed myself to doing a long-term project on that organization. What I think happened was I might've read Huey Newton's letter to Robert F. Williams. And for people who aren't familiar with that, Robert F. Williams was elected the first president of the provisional government of the Republic of New Africa. And people like Imari Obadeli and others were sending letters to various contemporary organizations in their attempts to build some, some solidarity, right? So that there's a, a more unified movement for Black liberation. And Huey Newton ended up writing a couple of letters to Robert Williams, first saying, uh... We think that the idea of, of territory may be a little bit premature, but then later on saying, hey, you know what? We support this and we consider anything that the Republic of New Africa has liberated as liberated territory. And so it might have been a combination of that and just seeing the name Republic of New Africa without much explanation in various texts that were coming out at the time. And, and even some that did have a little more explanation, I'm thinking New Day in Babylon, right, where uh, in at least one of the chapters, if I remember correctly, had a pretty good basic layout of here's what the Republic of New Africa is. But as I started to learn more, uh, well, first of all, the idea was foreign to me. It was like, what? Independence? New African nation? You know, it's just way out of <laughs> anything I had imagined before. And so that caused me to become intrigued. And with intrigue, as a researcher, I started researching 
and started to learn more and more. Got a couple of Imari Obadelli's books and decided because there was a dearth of information about the new African independence movement that, hey, maybe I should focus on this if I could find enough resources. Thankfully, I was able to. In terms of more broadly, when we think more broadly about the archival work that you do here, one of the most interesting aspects of the book is the way that you take these competing or or disparate archival sources, right? Mm -hmm. So you have state-sanctioned sources, uh, which Mm -hmm. unsurprisingly have a very specific idea of of what the RNA is. Um, And then you have archives like community um, archives um, and archives rooted in process of struggle and you have the oral histories um Mm -hmm. so how difficult was it to navigate the spaces between those archives and 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 secondly you you talk particularly towards the end of the book about this idea of silence um and Mm -hmm. how difficult Mm -hmm. was it to try and interpret those silences within the archives um, and within the histories of the rna and and of um the new africa independence movement Yeah, you know, the challenges that I faced, I think, are first just reflective of the general challenges that historians that historians face when trying to reconstruct these histories. Right. Even if they're popular histories, as you were alluding to, they've already, you know, the very collections themselves reflect what people want to convey in many in many ways whether subconsciously or intentionally that's just what it is the added challenge with the new african independence movement is that it has been deemed insignificant by a number of people and so when i first started my research people asked well, why are you studying that that didn't even really weren't that many people didn't really last long it's not really significant and of course, you know, why don't you study the Panthers? Panther archives all over the the country, the United States of America, right? Um, but with with the Republic of New Africa, there really are only two major state-sanctioned archives that have information about them. That that's there's one in Detroit at Wayne State University, and then the uh, Mississippi Department of Archives and Histories. Hopefully, I didn't mess up their acronym. So, and, and what they have in there is information that um, people probably could access elsewhere. Not to say that they're not important, because I actually did get some things, whether it be newspapers or whether it be letters that I couldn't just generally find. So they did have some, each, each did have some unique um, documents to offer, but they weren't really getting at the richness that I was hoping for. And so I had to I, I had to decide and I had decided already that I wanted to interview people while they were still alive. And which also presents its own set of challenges, of course. Um, first of all, getting people to agree. And then because they had experienced such heavy repression from the state, you know, people we're, we're not really trusting. And I mean, who am I, right? Nobody knows me. I'm just some guy who comes out of nowhere. Hey, I want to talk to you about the time you got arrested, right? Not really going to go over well for a lot of people. So, um, but because I pursued that and because I was able to start to develop some relationships with people, I was able to access things like personal notes, which I couldn't find in any archives, you know, because one of my questions was, well, everyone goes to these nation building classes. What what were they like? Were they just political education, very generic, or were they was it something specific? And so through interviews that I did and through some of the notes that people had held on to, I was able to reconstruct what a nation building class might have generally been like. And and from there, people who are familiar with other organizations, they can start to distinguish, okay. So this emphasis on self-determination helps to guide the learning within these new African spaces. Whereas with the Black Panther Party, you know, there's more of a, a, a Marxist, Leninist, Mao Zedong emphasis on a number of different questions of, of, about liberation, right? And so um, it, it 
ultimately, of course, became an opportunity to fill in gaps, to ask new questions, to um, get a hold of personal papers, which just there are certain people who have much more comprehensive, good, bad and ugly right holdings than the state sanctioned archives have. Finally, it gave me an opportunity, as I said before, to start building relationships with people. So I got to become a participant and observer for a lot of things. Um, I was able to attend some major events. I was able to attend non-major events that were more, you know, had I had developed a relationship with somebody. They invited me to something they were hosting. And that allowed me, I, I think at least, it allowed me to get more, pull more out of my analysis because instead of being a complete outsider at a certain point, I started to see with my own eyes and feel with my own body and, and mind what this is like for, for the people who are involved in this movement. And I'm using present tense now because the movement is ongoing and that's something that I think uh, the scholarship that existed before my book had made people think that it ended in the, the early to mid seventies. And so with my book, I demonstrate actually, no, this is ongoing to this day. People are still working on this. So you mentioned um, t- two, two key aspects of the book there. Um, first of all, the, the brothers, uh, the Obadelli brothers. And then secondly, in, in talking about Wayne state, um, talking about Detroit as, as a formative space mm-hmm. um, for the RNA. Um, can you say a little bit about the role that those two brothers played and then also Detroit as a space and how important that space was in, in the early development of, of the RNA? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So beginning with the Obadelli brothers. So um, in the early, they were they were born as the Henry brothers, Richard and Milton Henry, with Milton being the older who became uh, um, Gaidi Obadelli and Richard being the younger who became Imari Obadelli. So they're actually from Philadelphia, ended up moving to the Detroit area for various reasons and got involved in the civil rights movement there. It seems to me that from very early on, they were involved in civil rights. You know, they wanted equality, integration, things like that. But they seem to always have a critique of those two, those two ideas. Um, and this is especially true with Gaidi Obadeli, who at one point was an elected official in Pontiac, Michigan. And Pontiac is a suburb of, of Detroit. He started to realize hey, I'm an elected official, but I'm outnumbered. I can't, any decisions I want to make don't really matter because if these other folks disagree with them, my idea doesn't move forward. And his ideas, he he would, would have argued, were to benefit Black people. And it seemed, based on what his brother, Mario Bedelli, and he had written about them, uh, his time, Gaidi's time on the uh, city council, I believe it was, that he couldn't really get much done. At the same time, he sees some of his friends. He went to Lincoln University. He sees some of his friends who became heads of state in Africa, right? So people like Kwame Nkrumah, and they're running countries, and people who work in in Ghana, um, who he was friends with, are heading different ministries, making decisions that he thought was that's what I want to do. Fast forward just a little bit, or maybe not fast forward, but just to, just to shift, shift emphasis a little bit. The then Henry brothers had created a couple of organizations. One was the group on advanced leadership. And among the various things that they did, again, it was, it was focused on integration, focused on police brutality, things that were pretty common in Detroit at the time, and were very much in line with the civil rights movement there. But they also did things like they invited Malcolm X to speak in Detroit in 1963. And there he gave his message to the grassroots speech. And that speech, according to Imario Bedelli, who was then Richard Henry, that speech is what really put him and his brother on the path to pursuing self-determination and statehood. 
because in that speech, Malcolm X says, you know, revolutions are about land, they're bloody, land and war, right? <laughs> and so in the aftermath of that and in the aftermath of this assassination, they created the Malcolm X Society. And the goal of the Malcolm X Society was to bring different Black nationalists together to begin thinking about self-determination. And that's the group that created the, the founding convention during which the provisional government of the Republic of New Africa was created. And so Detroit was a, one of the phrases I like to use, it was a hotbed of Black revolutionary activism. That's, Ram had a stronghold there. Malcolm X had strong connections with people there. Queen Mother, oddly more, spent a lot of time in Detroit. So all of these people who we associate with the Black Power Movement, with reparations, with Black nationalism, they were there. They might not have lived there, but they were, they were there on a regular basis, and they were forming relationships with different people who were there. At the same time, you have the Boxes, you have CLR James who, who visits a little bit, you have the League of Revolutionary Black Workers, the Black Panther Party had a chapter there. There was a lot of radical and revolutionary activity. And so I think in some ways it isn't too surprising that a city like Detroit would become the place where they found this provisional government and really start to work on this movement. But but saying that, it's important to also say that this was a nationwide effort. There were people, I mean, they invited something like 500 people, and out of them, over 100 of the most recognizable names of the time made the decision to declare independence and pursue, pursue self-determination. So Detroit was... I guess, a connecting point for these people because the Obadellis were willing to commit to that effort. So you've, you've laid out there, you know, a variety of, of different people coming from quite disparate and, and at times competing ideological, yeah. philosophical yeah. backgrounds um, who come together to, to, to feed into this attempt to, to create an, an independent black nation. But there's there is quite a lot of tension there as well. And so can you say a bit about the the early years leading up to the relocation of of operations to, to Mississippi? Um, what kinds of tensions are there and how is that affecting leadership and, and direction of the RNA? Yeah, yeah. You know, one thing I love about people is we can all agree on the same thing but we would disagree on everything having to do with that thing we agree on. So in, in my studies and what I've read from other scholars, tension is just ever present. And one of the big tensions with, within the provisional government, well, there are two. First of all, their elected president, Robert Williams, was in, living in exile. At the time, he was living in China. So they were trying to figure out, well, how can we bring him home so he can be the true leader of this movement. Another tension was between the Obadeli brothers. Gaidi and, and Imari Obadeli had very different ideas about how to, how to be leaders, how to guide other people, and what specific strategies and tactics were best based on the situations that they were in. And so one of the reputations that Imario Bedelli developed was some people considered him to be kind of reckless in those early years. And there are plenty of people who disagree, but that's the reputation that he had earned across a good portion of the, of the movement. And so some people didn't trust him. On the other hand, people who sided with Imario Bedelli thought that Gaidi Obadeli was moving too slow and had taken too much of a, a reformist approach to this very revolutionary struggle and, and, and these revolutionary goals. And of course, there were people who didn't take sides. or I, I don't know if that would be the majority of the people or, or what, but there was a good amount of people who didn't take sides who wanted to help reconcile these different positions. But this is within the context of state repression. And if anyone who has studied the 1960s, especially studying uh, leftist movements or even some of the right wing organizations, right, 
government infiltration, disruption, and attempts, especially when we're talking about Black revolutionary efforts to destroy organizations and, and, and formations, it was ever present. It was it was very well coordinated and strong, and it was relentless. And so, when there was mistrust of Imario Bedelli, government officials and informers and agents were able to exploit that mistrust. Okay, so hmm, Imario Bedelli seems kind of reckless. Oh, maybe he's an informant. Maybe he's an agent provocateur. So the the government, the FBI, or the state police. They could send a false letter, which was one of their proven tactics. Send a letter from some anonymous brother. It's always an anonymous brother, right? <laughs> who, who says, you know what? Mm, money went missing. Mario Badelli has apparently planted a bomb somewhere. I don't trust them. Maybe he's the one who's causing X, Y, and Z. So, yeah, there's, there's always tensions between people. But the government repression exploited those tensions to a point where people were not able to reconcile their differences, which is already hard to do. In addition to this ongoing suppression and repression, you also see moments or flashpoints of confrontation. And and one which really shapes Mm -hmm. the book um, is the New Bethel incident of, of 1969. Yeah, yeah. So the New Bethel incident was, depending on who you talk to, it was a battle. It was a a shoot in. It was a shoot out. Right. <laughs> Again, depending on who you talk to, but it was a conflict between members of the what then called the Black Legion. Um, that that was the security force of the Republic of New Africa, and a couple of police officers that turned into a raid. And it's important that people understand they had met at New Bethel Baptist Baptist Church. New Bethel's head pastor was none other than C.L. Franklin, who was Aretha Franklin's father. He, to my knowledge, was not a part of the New African Independence Movement, but he was an activist. And he lent his church to a number of different community efforts and, and things of that nature. And so they met there. They met on actually the first anniversary of their founding, the last weekend in March in 1969. And as the story goes, as they were closing, two police officers approached some of the armed guards who were standing outside the church. Nobody can say exactly what happened, but bullets start flying. Okay, and one of the officers is mortally wounded. The other is critically wounded, but is able to call for help. Several units of the Detroit PD show up and they enter the church, guns ablazing. right? They arrest, I think it was 140, 150-ish people. But that night, George Crockett gets a call. He goes to the police station and he immediately begins processing people and sending most of the people home until they narrow down two or three people who may have been involved in the shooting that led to the death of the police officer. So it becomes a pretty infamous incident, not only because it's a shootout, not only because they kill a police officer, but because of the actions of this black judge. Come to find out he had connections with the CPUSA, the, the Communist Party, and was known to be a pretty leftist, radical type of person. And he believed in racial justice. And so he was able to move the process along quickly, earned him a lot of enmity from his contemporaries, but it earned him even more respect from Black communities all across the nation. One of the things that even though a lot of the people were immediately released from jail, there were still three people who went on trial, two who were charged with murder. So this begins to take up a lot of resources, right? Just like the Free Huey campaign, once somebody goes to prison, Efforts start to revolve around trying to help those people, getting them good legal counsel, raising the funds for whatever people need to do. So they start to divert resources toward that effort, but they're also getting a lot of publicity now. Just like the Panthers, when Bobby Seale stands up 
in, in the Capitol building, California armed, right? Just the image of black people with firearms, in this case, black people who killed a police officer, they're automatically demonized. And so some people who might've actually agreed with the goals, might've agreed with some aspects of the movement, were probably scared away. Some people, and this is my belief, I have no evidence for this except for my observations about humans, right? I'm sure that some people saw that and were like, oh, sign me up. Because of course, some people are pretty reckless, right? But they also lost some of their founding documents. People who I've interviewed asked me, have I found copies of the original Declaration of Independence that actually has people's signatures on it? Because that was stolen. That was taken, probably destroyed in the New Bethel incident. And so for the historian, that is one of the the losses that comes along with that is just the, that loss of some of the original documents. I would say that one final impact of this was that it exacerbated some of the tensions and gave the state new opportunities to implement their plans to disrupt, discredit, and destroy the new African independence movement. So the situation in Detroit is getting pretty hot and you see some elements of, of ideological tension and, and internal tension. And this leads in, in different ways to a, a relocation effectively um, from Detroit to Mississippi. How is that decision come to? How does that relocation happen? And, and does that change anything about what the RNA's mission is? Um, or is it still fairly consistent with its founding principles? Yeah, so the decision to relocate came out of a split, um, what they call the first constitutional crisis. So because the people who were elected into the provisional government were elected as provisional elected officials, their terms in office expired at the end of 1969. I cannot remember the exact date. And around that same time, Robert Williams comes home. He proves that he does not want to be the leader of this new African independence movement or the provisional government. And the Obadelli brothers' tensions are starting to become public and they're starting to move in separate directions. If anyone's familiar with splits within political movements and organizations, this follows a lot of the same patterns, right? Personalities clash, egos clash, ideas clash, right? To make a long story short, the people who were trying to work with both of these factions, they came up with some compromises that eventually led to Mario Bedelli being elected as the president of the PGRNA. He being the one who wanted to move a little bit faster in terms of taking control of what they call the national territory, he almost immediately decided to move south, first to Louisiana and then to Jackson, Mississippi, where they set up their headquarters and which continues to be the headquarters to this day. In my assessment, it didn't really change the strategies as much as it started to give life to some of the specifics that they wanted to do. Imario Bedelli had given this speech. He gave it in a number of different places. Part of the speech was published as a little pamphlet called the Eight Strategic Elements, right? And within those eight strategic elements, he lays out what is necessary for the new African independence movement to be successful. And really, the move south is perfectly in line with that. And that that eight strategic elements um, document has become one of the one of the the essential documents that uh, people built New African political science from. Okay, so had Gaidi Obadeli maintained control, had he been elected president and done something different, perhaps the move south would be seen as being out of step with the strategy. But because Imari Obadeli was given the opportunity to lead the movement, um, everything that they started to work on was perfectly in line with how they decided to build these th- th- this broad uh, body of ideas that we now call new African political science. 
And this idea of new African political science, you connect it a lot in your book to ideas of personal politics and, and lifestyle politics. So how did this specific political ideology um, manifest itself through family, through education, through day-to-day lived experience? Yeah, thanks for that. Um, yeah, so lifestyle politics is basically people's attempts to live out their political ideals. And for people who are pursuing independence and statehood, they started to make decisions based on what they thought was in line with those ultimate goals. And so to be more concrete, we can take someone like Chokwe Lumumba, who a lot of people are at least familiar with, at least have heard his name. He joined the the movement pretty early on. He was a student doing his undergrad, getting his undergraduate degree, but he had already decided that he wanted to be a lawyer. What ends up happening is as he participates in this movement, it starts to give direction to his legal practice. So, you know, he could be any type of lawyer he wants to be, just like anybody can. He decides to form his legal practice based on human rights, political rights for Black people in the U.S. He starts to work on cases that challenge state repression. And this is a little bit, this is probably a decade or so later. And he starts to work on issues with political prisoners. To me, that's one of the more significant things that he and other people started to do was we start to see, okay, there are activists who are, because they've been discredited, because they've their efforts have been disruptive and they, they've been charged, whether legitimately or not, with whatever crime, they're going to prison. And, you know, people like Chokwe Lumumba would argue that they're, they actually didn't commit crimes. It's time to start charging the state with crimes. And so that's what he ends up using his legal practice for. There are people like Nikichi Taifa, also a lawyer. A lot of lawyers in this movement, by the way. But... um also a lawyer. She knew that she wanted to be a lawyer before joining the movement, but joining the movement taught her about human rights law, taught her about international law. And so what she ended up doing was working on those types of issues. In terms of families, I mean, we talked about names a little bit. That was an important part of it. The way that I try to frame that in the book is by talking about Black nationalism because Black nationalism in the U.S. tend to have some specific language about families and communities, and families being the basis of community, and community being the basis of a strong nation, etc. And so people started to make conscious efforts to raise, to have children, and to raise them according to these ideals. And one of the stories that I tell in the book, there's a, um, an elder in Philadelphia, uh, Baba Khalid Abdul Rashid, he was, look, he was a soldier in the New African Independence Movement. He had a family. His children grew up in the movement preparing for independence. And there are different ways that they prepared. But one of the things that, that they like to talk about was, you know, the, the physical conditioning people had to do. Get up early Saturday morning, run around the park, do some push-ups, right? <laughs> Practice some martial arts. And even though these are things that people anybody can do, they did it with understanding that that they had already been repressed by state agencies, whether it be local police or the FBI, right? So there's a different mentality that goes into it. Another thing that I point out is, yeah, people started to participate in Kwanzaa celebrations, something that African-Americans all over the country started doing. But for new Africans, Kwanzaa wasn't just you know, Black Christmas or an alternative to European holidays, it was a way to begin transforming individuals so that they would be truly independent, self-determined people who could then make a new self-determined nation successful once it got its independence. And so lifestyle politics is a way for me to talk about those types of things. It's a way for me to to discuss how daily decision-making was intentional. It wasn't something that people just thought, oh, you know what, the good idea is to change my name. It sounds good. Some people surely did that. But for the people who are in the study, everything from name choices to how they wanted to educate their children, 
were designed to help them achieve an independent nation state. One aspect of the book in particular that I I thought was was really interesting um, was your discussion of the family and and ideas of heteronormativity and and gender politics within the RNA. And one of the things I I thought your book did really well was, was push back against that um, that assumption we often see in the literature of of black nationalism or cultural nationalism in particular being a quite sexist or aggressive force um, and and what you do is is you complicate that so you show ways in which the RNA explicitly tries to adopt an anti-sexist platform um, but then in other ways gender politics of, of members does reinforce broader ideas about, about gender dis- disparities in relation to black nationalist politics yeah so you asked me earlier about how i got into the study in the first place one of the things i remember learning early on was i, I recall someone saying oh you know rna they were polygamists i was like what <laughs> really why <laughs> right and so i started to look into it and found out that actually that wasn't exactly what was going on. Yes, it was what was going on, but it was just much more complex than some guys wanted to have 15 wives or something crazy. And whether a person agrees or disagrees with it, the folks like Queen Mother Ali Moore and Imario Bedelli, who were promoting these ideas, they saw it as a way to actually protect people, to give women greater autonomy, and and to make sure that people were protected and of course that was that was complementary to some very rigidly sexist ideas such as hey if everyone has access to a mate they don't have to become gay and lesbian so so yeah it's it's just complex um same thing with how they understood sexism they were very explicit in the declaration of independence and actually at the founding convention there were discussions about how to not be sexist, how to make sure women were empowered. And okay, yeah, great. Glad you had these conversations. Glad you made that a goal. But if you look at how people actually acted on the goals, their ideas about what was actually sexist sometimes was much different from how we might think about it today. So if a woman had a position of power within the provisional government or within some organization, hey, we're we're equal, right? Everyone's equal. But if you look at how people actually interacted, that might not have necessarily been true. On the other hand, there were some some men and women who were very clear. Look, I don't want to in any way as a man have more power over my wife, my comrades in the, in the movement, whatever, whatever. And so they struggled with that. They struggled genuinely with trying to rid themselves of sexism and trying to create a egalitarian environment for everybody involved. And so one of the things that I think is important to, to just remember, yeah, people were sexist. People still are sexist. People are homophobic. They're racist. But some people genuinely struggle around these these concepts and as they try to remake themselves as new africans as revolutionaries they try to rid themselves of oppressive tendencies and and i think that that's the most important takeaway another aspect of the book that that i appreciated which is your your last chapter in in particular um is focused on this is is pushing back on that declension narrative and, and thinking of black radical activism as you know ending up in prison or, or in the pockets of, of corporate America or wherever. And, and you, you map out quite persuasively um, ways in which the RNA feeds into more recent or and more and ongoing struggles, in, in particular the reparations movement. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you mentioned, I'll just start with the whole declension narrative. I do think that it's important to understand how change and evolution operate. And some things do come to an end, okay? There are some new African organizations that no longer exist. On the other hand, though, what about the ideas? What about the people who were developing these ideas? Did they just just stop? Did the ideas just go away? And at least with the new African independence movement, we can, I mean, of course, it's, it's ongoing. But even if it wasn't, 
we can see how the ideas that they were grappling with continue to circulate and people continue to help push them to where they need to be based on the specific context in which they're operating. And so, yeah, you, you talk about reparations. Provisional government of the Republic of New Africa did not invent reparations. Okay. Hopefully I make that clear in the book. <laughs> what I think they do deserve credit for, though, is maintaining the conversation about reparations, coming up with some concrete plans and working with politicians such as John Conyers, who's tried to implement them. And, and for people who don't know, John Conyers was a congressperson from Detroit. They helped bring people in and helped bridge gaps between various groupings. And so especially during the 1980s when you know the movement had just changed so much, for the New African Independence Movement, people who had been in prison started to come out and they started to rethink how they can act on their ideas. And with reparations, uh, Imario Bedelli was able to tap into some activity that was occurring in Washington, D.C. And um, this is in the context of Japanese Americans, survivors of internment in World War II era internment camps, are, are getting reparations, right, for the crimes committed against them. So they, they're able to really use that as momentum to bring these different elements, these different groupings of people together. And they did it under the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America. For the first decade or so of that organization's existence, people who were directly involved with the New African Independence Movement, including Imari Obadeli and Queen Mother Adli Moore, they had leadership positions, they were helping create chapters. They're recruiting people. They drove the agenda to, to a significant degree. One of the things that you can see on Encoba's website is they talk about this question of citizenship. Part of a reparations agreement has included a right to self-determination. People, the descendants of enslaved Africans, have a right to act on um, their citizenship status. They they have they can make a decision on that and the government should respect it and it should be a part of the negotiations. So that's something that I think is important to keep in mind. Um, about a year ago, the Movement for Black Lives released the reparations toolkit. And there are some people from current New African organizations who helped shape that. And it didn't say it didn't word things in exactly the way that I think the provisional government would word it, especially in terms of how they talk about land. But we can see in that the fact that these conversations are going and the fact that people from the New African independence movement are participating in these conversations, we can see how they're continuing to keep this, these ideas circulating and trying to create concrete actions that people can take around them. That's a great point and an important point, I think, to finish on. Appreciate you taking the time, Ed. It's been really great to talk to you today. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. 